I was wrong. So wrong to think that I was going to be able to wrap up this story in just one more episode. There will absolutely be a part five. And I want to say that it will be the final piece in this whole story, but I'm obviously not very good at estimating how long it's going to take me to tell a story. I supplement my research with more research as I go, and I'm highly susceptible to falling down resource rabbit holes. But I promised you that I'd give you an episode this week, so that's what I'm going to do. When we left our crew last week, they had taken to the boats and were navigating their way through the ice-packed Weddell Sea, searching for any piece of land that would serve as a base until they could find rescue. They had been stranded, their ship the Endurance, trapped in the ice in December of 1914. It was now April of 1916, and in all that time, they had either lived on their trapped ship before it sank to the bottom of the Weddell Sea, or on the surface of the pack ice. They had not stepped foot on solid land for almost a year and a half. They were starving, frostbitten, their dogs were all dead now, they even had to eat the last of them, and every day that passed made it less likely that they would ever see home again. They had taken to their lifeboats three 22-foot whaling vessels not equipped for navigating through the thick pack ice that had sunk their ship, a 144-foot, 44-meter Burkentine, and they were now trying to navigate their way to land, specifically King George Island, where there were stores of food and a seasonal whaling station where they hoped to find rescue. They are now several days into their torturous boat journey, their skin covered in saltwater boils, their lips cracked, frostbite setting into their hands, feet, and faces, their beards turned white from salt, their hunger gnawing at their underfed stomachs, and their clothes freezing to their bodies, which were constantly being bombarded by icy sea spray. And they had just found out that they had been going in the wrong direction. So let's see what happens next. Let's go back in time and all the way down to Antarctica. I'm your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside. The crew was so forlorn upon hearing that they had been suffering in the boats for nothing, actually traveling further from land and rescue, that some refused to believe it until Worsley recalculated their position again. But the denial of a truth does not change the reality of a truth. So now it was time for a new plan, or a new, new, new plan. Now they would be gunning for Hope Bay at the tip of the Palmer Peninsula, about 130 miles or 209 kilometers from their current position. The crew resumed their journey, taking turns at the oars in complete silence, exhausted and discouraged, but with no other option than to continue on. Several hours into their day, the pack ice began to impede their path to an extent that Shackleton thought would make night travel dangerous. He ordered the boats to find a place to heave to for the night. They would still remain in their boats, not wanting to repeat the previous nights of precarious bergs and flows. 
So after some time searching, they sailed up next to a floe too small for all three boats to anchor to. Shackleton ordered one of the boats, the docker, to be anchored to the ice, and the other boats to be tied up to one another, keeping everyone together. They stretched the tent canvases over the boats to help provide some warmth and protection from a heavy snow that had begun to fall. But rest was not for them, and the ice that had impeded their way during the day began threatening to crush the boats in the night. The crew grabbed the oars and used them to push the ice away and hold the larger chunks at bay. They would have fought like that all night, but a strong wind suddenly shifted, pushing the boats dangerously quickly towards the floe that had moments before been a shelter from the wind. Shackleton screamed his orders, and the oars were set, with everyone rowing as hard as they could to break free from the impending collision. They had to move so quickly that the anchor rope holding the docker to the ice had to be cut, forcing them to sacrifice precious rope to the ice. They rode to safety as pancake ice began forming all around them. Pancake ice occurs when newly frozen precipitation freezes on the surface of water. It looks like pancakes or giant frozen lily pads stretched out into a fantastic mosaic of odd circles floating on the sea. Shackleton ordered the boats to be tied to one another. They still had not slept to any real degree, and it was too cold to push on. It was well below freezing that night, and the men had to huddle together and use their collective body heat to stave off the cold. Even this didn't do much. Their sea-sprayed clothes were frozen, and there was nothing dry for them to change into. Shackleton wrote that on this particular night, he thought several of the men would probably be dead by morning. Time seemed to slow to a painfully reduced pace, and they were constantly asking Worsley what time it was. This eventually turned into a game of who could go the longest without asking the time. But every few minutes, someone would give in to curiosity, and Worsley would patiently take the chronometer from its place around his neck and use the silver glow of moonlight to give a reading. The answer would only be a painful reminder of how much longer this night was to last. Some of the crew were still agonizingly seasick. Ordelise, the man who had been chased by a leopard seal, and the one who had taken a long bicycle ride out onto the pack ice in the first episode after he found a bike in the ship's hull, was the worst off. Or at least you'd think he was, because he was constantly complaining. Many of the others had started to resent Ordelise, because for the entire boat journey, he had not done his share of the rowing, or bothered helping much in any way. He was constantly skipping his turn at rowing. This was a fairly easy thing to do, because rowing was the one thing that could keep you warm, so someone was usually ready to volunteer to let him skip his turn. But when no volunteers were willing, and he was forced to pitch in, he would begin purposefully rowing out of rhythm with the others, causing the boat to slow or turn, or he'd even let his oars hit the fingers of the person rowing behind him. The others would threaten him, curse at him, yell at him, but nothing worked. So when he was crippled with seasickness, no one had any sympathy for him. When the sliver of light of morning appeared over the water, signaling the onset of dawn, the men were all, quite miraculously, still alive. But Shackleton was unsure how much more they could take, and the thought of losing anyone after having been through so much 
caused him increasing anxiety. That morning, he told the crew they could eat as much as they wanted. This would help stave off some of the cold. He didn't mention it, but Shackleton was planning on dumping some of their food into the sea when they hit open water to lighten their load, trading precious food stores for the sake of speed. After four months of intensive research on this story, I still cannot understand Shackleton's constant eagerness to leave their food supplies behind. I almost wonder if he thought there was no way everyone would live through this and that eliminating rations wouldn't matter in the end, since dead men couldn't eat them anyway. The food was cold, and although most took advantage of the increased rations, some couldn't eat due to their seasickness. Among them was Ordelese, and the others, having become so resentful of his unwillingness to pull his own weight, began taunting him, making sure he saw them eating their uncooked dog food in hopes of upsetting his stomach further. Before they left, Shackleton discussed their position with Worsley, and after some calculating and deliberation, they announced that for the fourth time since they had left Patience Camp, their destination had changed. So the new, 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 new plan was to shoot for Elephant Island, that desolate bit of unexplored volcanic rock, which they believed was about 100 miles, or 160 kilometers, to the northwest. The crew, by now used to following orders with all of these frequently changing plans, seemed unperturbed at the news. They didn't care where they were going as long as they could get somewhere anywhere that wasn't these boats on this frozen, miserable sea. After eating, they began to row again, with some renewed energy brought on by the encouraging light of day and the extra calories. As they rowed, they saw thousands of dead fish among the pancake ice. They guessed that they had been killed by a particularly cold sea current. Flocks of birds were swooping down all around them to take advantage of the frozen feast. The wind, for once, seemed to cooperate, and it pushed them, increasing their speed and allowing them to hold their direction. Then, with this wind at their backs, they once again reached open water. The rolling waves were giants compared to the small boats, and as they rose to the tops, then descended down the long, heaving swells of dark water, they would often lose sight of one another. The crews of the Docker and the Wills were constantly bailing out water as the fierce wind of the open sea, coupled with the water crashing on their sides, made becoming capsized with water a constant source of worry. Though the day had been trying, they had made excellent progress. With the daylight dwindling, Shackleton ordered all the boats to anchor to one another for the night. He feared that, if left on their own, someone would drift off and become lost to the swells of the open sea. He was also concerned that, during the night, they would overshoot their course, missing the island entirely, and their last chance at finding land. When night approached, the temperature dropped to minus 8 below freezing, or negative 22 Celsius. The spray that had relentlessly assaulted them all day now froze. They tried huddling under the tent canvases, but the wind continuously ripped them loose. And it wasn't just the crew being frozen with sea spray. The ice kept forming on the boats, and throughout another sleepless night, the crew was busy chopping it from the sides of the bows of the ships as it was making them dangerously heavy, causing them to sink down further into the water. 
When the waves splashed into the boats, it would travel down to the bottom, and all of their feet were at least ankle-deep, soaking in the cold water. Lansing wrote of this in his book, saying, quote, To keep their feet from freezing, they worked their toes continuously inside their boots. They could only hope that the pain in their feet would continue, because comfort, as much as they yearned for it, would mean that they were freezing. After a time, it took extreme concentration for them to keep wriggling their toes. It would have been so terribly easy just to stop." Unquote. Apparently, there was one good set of oilskins left. Oilskin is a heavy cloth that is made waterproof by working it with a solution of hot oil, gum, and wax. It was used by many polar explorers and was often made into clothing for sailors and explorers working in extreme conditions. Ordelis, the guy who wouldn't row, grabbed the only good set, moved to the only semi-comfortable spot on the boat, shoved Marston out, who had been sitting there, wrapped himself up, and laid there, refusing to share either the space or the oilskin with anyone else. I can almost feel the total hatred the others had for this guy during the entire boat trip. They cursed at him again, but he didn't seem to care. He just huddled up with the oilskins and ignored the misery of everyone else, too far gone in his own suffering to care. By now, that meal of extra rations they had enjoyed that morning was starting to backfire. Several times during the night, many of them had to hurry to the gunwale, drop their pants, and curse as their explosive diarrhea splattered down into the sea, as the icy water splashed right back up and hammered them with water from one of the coldest seas on Earth. Can you imagine how absolutely miserable this night had to have been? Just everything totally and thoroughly sucked. Stevenson, one of the men later denied the Polar Medal, just kept periodically putting his head in his hands and weeping uncontrollably, the tears freezing to his cheeks. Blackborough, the former stowaway who I'm certain at this point must have wished he had chosen any other ship in the world to have stowed away on, lost all feeling in his feet. He had packed his felt boots away, wanting to save them for the future, and donned his leather ones instead. This would prove to be a lifelong mistake. Hudson, who had been at the tiller for almost 72 hours straight, started to experience a severe pain in his left buttock that would later prove to be a huge issue. His hands were also now severely frostbitten. Almost everyone was afflicted from saltwater boils that would rupture and discharge a disgusting gray pus. They had also begun to suffer from severe thirst in their haste to escape, they hadn't taken any freshwater ice on board to melt before they had hit open water, and now their tongues were swollen and they were having trouble swallowing due to an increasingly severe dehydration. This had been their worst night yet, but somehow everyone was still alive with the onset of the bright, breaking dawn. As the sun rose, the sea settled and the wind subsided. As the pink glow of the sunrise began transitioning into a flaming gold, the horizon cleared, and they finally saw it. It was land. Once more, it was the land they had been hoping for. There, 30 miles, 48 kilometers away, was Elephant Island. They began hastily untying the boats from one another, 
eager to make their way to solid ground. This was difficult, as the knots had frozen over, and they were working with unresponsive, frostbitten fingers to untie them. While trying to untie the knot anchoring the docker, the boat was pitched downward with the swell, then rose suddenly. Holness, the man who a few nights before had fallen into the sea, couldn't get out of the way in time, and two of his teeth were knocked out by the anchor. With the pain ringing in his mouth and tears welling in his eyes, he cut the anchor loose and, ice and all, hauled it on board. If you remember, he was also one of the men denied the honor of the Polar Medal by Shackleton. The oars had frozen to the sides of the boats during the night and had to be knocked loose from the ice. Once free, the slippery oars slid right through the oarlocks and two of them fell into the sea. They were able to retrieve one, but the other was gone forever. Another gift to the cold sea. They still had no fresh ice to melt for water, and their thirst situation was becoming unbearable. Shackleton ordered raw seal meat to be given to everyone. They placed it, piece by piece, into their mouths, allowing the thawing blood from the meat to relieve the dryness from their swollen mouths. The meat was salty, so only offered a momentary relief before thirst set in with extra force. Shackleton was afraid the crew would exhaust the seal meat rations in their frenzy to slate their thirst, so he ordered that from now on, meat only be given out when the thirst became absolutely unbearable. Greenstreet took off his boots to examine his feet, horrified to find them frostbitten. Surprisingly, Ordelise, who had been no help since the boat journey had started, took Greenstreet's feet into his hands and began trying to massage the life back into them. Perhaps this was to make up for his unwillingness to help when things were dire, or perhaps he felt a pang of empathy for the other man who was just as miserable as he was. Ordelise worked Greenstreet's feet for a long time, then opened his jacket and placed the other man's feet against his bare chest. Gradually, Greenstreet felt the blood painfully begin to recirculate, giving him the relief of knowing he hadn't lost them to the cold after all. Not wanting to spend another miserable night on the boats, the crew rowed with everything they had, and by the afternoon, with almost 80 hours of sleepless nights weighing on them, they cut the distance between them and Elephant Island in two. As they approached the island, the currents and the wind affected by the land made things increasingly difficult. They stopped making any real headway, and night began to set in, forcing them to continue only by the light of the moon. Worsley, who was riding in the docker, suggested to Shackleton that they all finally separate and try making their way to the island independently. Shackleton, for once, agreed. Keeping all of the boats together was difficult and cumbersome, Shackleton, riding in the Caird, the fastest and most well-equipped ship, ordered that the wills, which had proven to be the slowest and least seaworthy, continue to be kept astern. But he allowed Worsley to break away and try reaching the shore independently in the docker. In the Caird, McNish had been steering at the tiller and finally succumbing to the exhaustion and physical toils of the last few days, slumped forward and simply fell asleep. This jarred the boat, and Shackleton ordered Wilde to take over. There's only so much a human body can take, and these men were all at the limit of endurance, more than they had been at any other point in this journey. Around midnight, Shackleton lost sight of the others in the docker. 
He ordered a match to be lit, signaling their position to those lost in the darkness. But there was no reply. Worsley, who was captaining the docker, did see the light and lit their only candle in response, but no one in the cared could see it. Before they could make their way back to the others, a riptide grabbed the docker and spun her violently into a lost course. The crew in the docker would now row frantically for the next several hours, bailing water out all the while and trying to make it back to wherever the other two boats were. But it soon became apparent that they had no idea where they were. About 3 a.m., Worsley, exhausted and physically unable to continue steering, fell over unconscious. McLeod and Marston grabbed him and put him in the bottom of the boat. They began rubbing his stomach and thighs vigorously, trying to loosen his muscles, warm him, and bring him back to consciousness. But he didn't wake. Examining him, to their relief, they found him to be alive, but he was unresponsive, his body and mind having simply given up, forcing him into a state of unremittent unconsciousness. The others in the boat felt even more alone, their captain and navigator being lost to them, at least for now. And they began to wonder if they had been carried past the island into the open sea. They simply had to wait until morning when the sun would rise either over an island or the great expanse of the open sea. When the faint outline of Elephant Island's rocky crags proved to be more than just a hallucination in the dawn light, the crew aboard the docker felt a sense of relief that set fire to their souls. Huge gray cliffs jutted out of the sea, and they were less than a mile away. Before they could celebrate fully, 100 mile per hour winds descended on the boat, and as they looked behind them, they saw a wave the size of their ship heading right in their direction. They were caught in a cross sea. If you remember from the last episode, a cross sea occurs when the current pushes water one way and the wind pushes it another. This creates waves up to a story high that smash into anything caught in the checkerboard layout of a cross sea. They scrambled to drop the sail and take to the oars. Worsley was still unconscious, but the others needed him. They needed him to navigate them to safety, to tell them what to do. They screamed at his unresponsive body, which stayed still, like a heavy corpse refusing to rot. Desperately, they began shaking him. When this didn't work, McLeod resorted to kicking him. Over and over. McLeod kicked at his captain. Until finally, Worsley opened his eyes. He shot up, immediately realizing the situation they were in. He saw the wave heading for them and railed at the crew, shouting, for God's sake, get her around, get away from it, hoist the sail. And they did, just as the wave hit them. Green Street was almost knocked out of the boat and everyone grabbed anything they could to bail out the water. Those who couldn't find anything resorted to using their bare hands. Eventually, they were able to bail most of the water out, and Worsley, the navigator who had led them to land, steered the boat towards the shore. He sailed to the edge, but there was no landing site. 
so they hugged the frozen edge of the glaciers. Freshwater ice that had fallen from the glaciers floated on the waves, and the crew of the docker, who had not had anything to drink in 48 hours, desperately grabbed at the ice with frozen fingers and satisfyingly gnawed on the ice in total euphoria. The crew in the other boats had no idea what had happened to the crew of the docker. They had been dealing with their own misery throughout the night. Shackleton felt sympathy for Blackborough, the young stowaway, the teenager that he had reeled at on their way to the continent, telling him that if they were to eat anyone, he would be first. Shackleton had come to care for the young man during this adventure, seeing him not as a stowaway, but a real member of the crew. Unlike Greenstreet, he had not been able to get any feeling back in his frostbitten feet. He sat in silence throughout the night, not complaining even once. This kid, who had left home at 18, was now a man of 20, surrendering the last of his teenage years to the Antarctic on a foolish, youthful whimsy he thought would bring him fame and adventure, which he now knew would probably cost him his feet and probably his life. He sat in the boat quietly, wondering when gangrene would set in. During the night, Shackleton decided he would allow Blackborough to be the first on shore when they reached the island, a place no human had set foot before. With most of the world having been mapped out and discovered by now, the unexplored places were running out. Shackleton saw giving this young man the honor of being one of the last people to say that he had been somewhere first as a way to alleviate his regret and sadness. That night, Shackleton called out into the darkness, saying, Blackborough, here, sir, came the quiet reply. We shall be on Elephant Island tomorrow. No one has ever landed there before, and you will be the first ashore. But Blackborough didn't answer. We can only guess at what he was feeling. In the morning, the crew gazed in awe at the huge volcanic cliffs of the island, Gulls screamed from the heights and waves smashed violently into the sides of the rocks and glaciers. The crew eagerly grabbed the freshwater ice, slaking their thirst as the lost crew of the docker had been doing at the same time. They searched for an hour before spotting a small shore hidden behind a chain of rocks. It looked like a perilous landing, but it was the only one that they had seen and Shackleton ordered them to make for it. As they did, the docker rounded the shore from the other direction, and everyone was elated to see that the others had survived throughout the night. It's fairly amazing that both these parties had found the same spot to land. If the docker had chosen to go in the other direction, they may not have spotted the others at all, and both crews would have survived on separately, believing the others to have been lost. Everyone cheered at the happy reunion. The boats were able to navigate safely over the reef, and when the bottom of the boats ground against the hard land, the stable, unmelting, unsinkable, solid land, the feeling those men must have had must have been absolute jubilation. This is the first time any of them would feel the earth under their feet in 497 days. Shackleton remembered his promise to Blackborough, Shackleton, forgetting Blackborough's feet were no longer working, told him to jump over the side, 
When the young man didn't move, Shackleton hoisted him over the side of the boat, and Blackborough fell into the surf, unable to do anything but just sit there. Shackleton suddenly remembered the man's feet with a pang of guilt, and he, along with several others, pulled him up onto the beach, making sure he was the first to touch dry land, ensuring Shackleton was able to keep his promise, which seemed at the moment a bit lost on Blackborough. Shackleton described the scene, saying some of the men were reeling about on the beach as if they were literally drunk with joy. Others were laughing uncontrollably or mumbling gibberish to themselves. They were picking up pebbles and watching them fall through their fingers as if they were made of precious gold and gems. Shackleton described it as, quote, That glittering hour of childhood, when the doors open at last and the Christmas tree in all its wonder bursts upon the vision, unquote. It must have been one of those moments you only get to feel once in your lifetime. An emotional response so rare that we don't have words to describe just how it feels to everyone else. It was a sacred moment. Green Street, still wobbly with frostbite, was laid down to rest next to Blackborough. Rickinson, one of the engineers, stood ashore, felt the earth beneath his feet, stared up at the impressive cliffs surrounding the beach, then promptly had a heart attack. Can you imagine going through all that to finally make it back to land after 497 days just to have a heart attack the minute you finally set foot on land? Miraculously, he lived through it. Green, the cook, immediately set up the stove and made hot milk for everyone, and they were once again permitted to eat anything they could. They ate all day, and the seal meat they had was actually cooked. While the food was cooking, the rest of the crew set up the tents, and after they ate, everyone slept as deep a sleep as you possibly can. For the first time in a long time, they felt safe as they fell asleep. James, the expedition's physicist, described it as a dead, dreamless sleep so deep that they didn't even notice the dampness of their sleeping bags. They slipped into rest with the feeling of earth beneath them. No cracks would appear in the night. No one would fall through the ice. No ocean swells would upend their beds. No pack ice would be there to trap them in the morning. They just let their minds fade away among the sounds of the waves crashing on shore and the soft croaking of penguins lulled them to sleep. The next day, Shackleton gave them some bad news. The beach they were on was not a good one. The spring tides would clearly overrun the beach, totally submerging it underwater. If a strong northeasterly gale were to spontaneously batter the island, which could happen at any time, the waves from the sea would crash all the way to the cliffs behind them. This place was only safe when the weather was fair and the tides were low, which was not often. The crew was pretty devastated to hear that they would once again have to retreat to the boats. The night of rest they had been permitted was a seasonal lucky break. At any other time, the beach would have been submerged and landing would have been impossible. It was a blessing to sleep and regroup, but there was no other choice but to move on. Instead of loading all three boats with everyone, Shackleton ordered Wilde to take a small crew out on the wills and find a better shore. 
As the crew of the Wills rolled out onto the sea, those behind on the beach were free to enjoy the day and bask in the feeling of security the ground, albeit fickle, afforded them. Lansing described this perfectly when he wrote, quote, It was a joy, for example, to watch the birds simply as birds, and not for the significance they might have, whether they were a sign of good or evil, an opening of the pack or a gathering storm, unquote. Those on the beach spent the day enjoying the simple feeling of just being, a feeling many of us take for granted, but for them, it was a day in paradise. After nine hours, Wilde returned with the others. He reported that the island was a truly inhospitable place, and they were able to find only one suitable possible landing. It was a fairly sheltered bit of beach, 200 yards long, or 182 meters, and was seven miles, or 11 kilometers, away. It wasn't great, but it was good enough. Good enough was good enough, and Shackleton ordered everyone into the boats. The wind was fierce, careening down the sides of the 2,000-foot cliffs. Progress was slow, and they could only take to the oars as hoisting the sails would blow them offshore. They hugged the coastline as closely as they could. They had left at dawn, and by 3 o'clock, they reached their new shore. The docker had fallen behind the others once again, and by the time its crew landed, the others had already killed and dressed two seals they had found on the beach. Spying the vapor wafting from the corpses as the internal heat of the seals mingled with the cold air, Greenstreet hobbled over and thrust his hands into one of the dead seals to warm his frostbitten hands, an action that, at some other point in his younger life, he may have found revolting. Their new camp was safe from the tide, but it was not inviting. It was rocky and jutted inland, hitting a glacier about 500 feet, or 152 meters in. But the worst thing was the wind. It was incredibly windy, and there were no boulders or outcroppings that offered any shelter. The beach was a naked piece of rock, but it was all they had. Macklin the surgeon wrote, quote, A more inhospitable place could scarcely be imagined. The gusts increased in violence and became so strong that we could hardly walk against them, and there was not a lee or scrap of shelter anywhere." Unquote. Two of the tents had been torn by the wind as they were being set up, and with no more materials to patch them, the men simply laid on the ground to fall asleep. They watched helplessly later as the wind carried away a large bag of old blankets and dropped them into the sea. Cooking pots were stolen by the wind in a similar fashion, and some even had their mittens blown right off their hands. Their faces were cut with bits of ice and rock that were constantly hurtling through the air. The tents that were not demolished had to be taken down as the wind was threatening to tear them into pieces, and everyone that had been sleeping outside was now covered in a layer of snow. Shackleton ordered them to leave camp and hunt penguins, this was difficult, as the winds were almost impossible to walk through. But they still returned, having killed 77 of them. Orta Lee later wrote that putting their hands into the skin penguins was the only thing that saved them. The conditions were especially demoralizing for Rickinson, who was still recovering from his heart attack, as well as Blackborough, whose feet were still in a bad way. 
The two doctors in the crew told Shackleton after examining Blackborough's feet that if he couldn't get them to move soon, his toes may have to be amputated. All of these worries only charged Shackleton's decision that something had to be done, and done now. The next day, April 20th, 1916, Shackleton announced to the crew that he would be going on a rescue mission. He would take five of them with him, and they would sail in the Caird for South Georgia, an island 820 miles, or 1,321 kilometers away. No one was surprised at this news. They knew that whatever island they reached would most likely be uninhabited, and that someone would have to keep going to find help. A lot of the crew members wanted to volunteer to go on the rescue mission with Shackleton. They had grown tired of waiting around and not knowing what their fate would be. Making it 820 miles in a 22-foot whaling boat was a long shot, and it was very probable Shackleton and the others with him would die trying to find rescue. But at least they wouldn't have to wait on a naked, wind-torn beach completely oblivious to what their fate would hold. But Shackleton had already made up his mind about the crew he wanted. He had to take Worsley. His skills as a navigator were the only reason they had made it to Elephant Island at all, and he was an absolute necessity. South Georgia Island was small, about 25 miles or 40 kilometers across, and missing it would mean that everyone died. Those in the boat and those stranded back on the rocky beach. They had one shot at this, and failure was not an option. He would also be taking Crean, a seasoned sailor who did what he was told. Shackleton knew that Crean would have found life waiting on the island to be unbearable, and it was better to take him, use his skills as a sailor, than leave him on shore where his boredom could infect the others. He would also take McNish, the expedition's carpenter, and the man who resented Shackleton for killing his beloved cat, Mrs. Chippy. Neither Shackleton nor Wilde liked McNish, so taking him served two purposes. For one, he would be invaluable if the boat needed repairing. No one could fix something like McNish could. They needed him and his skills as a carpenter. Second, they saw the 57-year-old man as a potential troublemaker socially, and Shackleton wanted McNish with him, lest he bring down the morale of the others. Vincent, a trawlerman in charge of equipment, was to come along too. Vincent had proved to be a bit of a bully, and Shackleton had to reprimand him in the past. He was strong, so he would be of use on the journey, but if left with the others, he could seriously impede morale. Shackleton's main concern for those he was leaving behind was their mental health and emotional state. They would be trapped on the island, probably through winter, even if Shackleton made it to South Georgia, or until they died of starvation. Shackleton was constantly watching the group, reading the dynamics and making adjustments. With him gone, he needed to know that he was leaving his crew set up to experience the least trying mental conditions possible. Lastly, he would be taking Timothy McCarthy, a sailor. McCarthy was not a troublemaker. In fact, he was very agreeable. Everyone liked him. Shackleton wanted him because he was strong and because he liked him. Shackleton was already taking two of the four men he would not give the polar medal to, and he wanted another person around that could help lighten the emotional load. After the announcement, McNish immediately began to fix up the cared, taking planks from the docker 
and using them to set up a deck over the cared that would shelter them from the sea. This would later prove to be a life-saving addition. The docker would never sail again, and Shackleton gave the crew permission to upend it, turn it over, and make a shelter from it. This was necessary, as the tents were useless and they needed something to sleep under. The crew packed snow and mud along one side and draped canvas, old blankets, and coats from the other. McNish took the mainmast from the docker and fitted it into the keel of the Caird in hopes this would help keep her from breaking in two in bad weather. Until the launch of the Caird, McNish would make many preparations for the boat journey, and all would prove to be essential. Shackleton was pensive. He knew there was a good chance he would die sometime in the next few days. He left a note ordering that Frank Hurley, the photographer, be given all rights to any photos of the expedition upon his death. He also left him his big binoculars, a treasured item. Shackleton was leaving Frank Wilde in command of the crew on the beach. He loved Wilde and found him to be his closest companion and most trusted hand. He would have liked to take Wilde with him, but the intelligence and excellent character of his second-in-command would be a necessity for the crew he would be leaving behind. Before he left, Shackleton wrote this letter in his log that he gave to Wilde. It was dated April 23, 1916, and it said, quote, Dear Sir, in the event of my not surviving the boat journey to South Georgia, you will do your best for the rescue of the party. You are in full command from the time the boat leaves the island, and all hands are under your orders. On your return to England, you are to communicate to the committee. I wish you, Lees, and Hurley to write the book. You watch my interests. In another letter, you will find the terms as agreed for lecturing. You're to do England, Great Britain, and continent, Hurley, the USA. I have every confidence in you, and always have had. May God prosper your work and your life. You can convey my love to my people, and say I tried my best. Yours sincerely, E.H. Shackleton." Unquote. It's embarrassing to admit this, but the first time I read this, I cried. Here was a man too bold for the job he had, too short-sighted, almost blindsided by his own ambition. But here was also a man who really meant well, really wanted to do something epic with the life he had. Here was a man who had tried his best. He knew they were all there because of a series of decisions he had made, and he was going to do everything he could to get them out alive. And although I don't like some of the things Shackleton did, I don't like that he denied anyone pay or a polar medal or shortchanged Macintosh and the crew of the Aurora back in episode one, or that he left food behind over and over again because of his own overconfidence. But I do respect him. And I really believe that he gave everything he had to get this crew out of there, even if it meant throwing himself against one of the most dangerous seas in the world. I've come to expect no less than that level of audacity and courage from Shackleton. The Caird was equipped with six weeks of rations, including two water casks filled with melted glacier ice. For navigation, they had only a sextant, binoculars, paper charts, a prismatic compass, a chronometer, and the mind of Worsley. 
The morning they left, all hands were given extra biscuits, along with some jam at breakfast. The atmosphere was apprehensive, but the crew did their best to make jokes and keep things jovial for the six of them that were about to risk their lives to save them all. They were all starkly aware that this might be the last time they ever saw one another again. Shackleton was anxious to get going. Winter was coming, and if they waited much longer to make their voyage, the pack ice would surround the island, making escape for the small boat impossible. So when the weather was somewhat fair and the sea was less monstrous, Shackleton shook the hand of Wilde and declared it was time for the crew of the Caird to push away from the shore. During the preparations, Vincent and McNish both fell out of the boat and into the water. This was the second time Vincent had fallen into the water. Hurley, the photographer, quickly grabbed his camera, wanting the others to hold off just for a moment from rescuing the two in the water so he could get a perfect photo of the situation. I think in another life, he would have made a good journalist. But the two were rescued before he could take his picture, and the cared pushed its way past the reef and into the open water. The 22 men on the beach waved goodbye and watched Shackleton and the others sail away until they could see them no more. Ordelise wrote, quote, They made surprising speed for such a small craft. We watched them until they were out of sight, which was not long, for such a tiny boat was soon lost to sight on the great heaving ocean. And as she dipped into the trough of each wave, she disappeared completely, sail and all. I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening to the History Cash podcast. You have many thousands of podcasts to choose from, and I'm massively appreciative that you've chosen to listen to mine. I also want to thank everyone who has followed the show and taken the time to write a review. It has absolutely helped to make the show more visible. If you're interested in further supporting the show, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash historycashpodcast. You'll get access to a members-only feed, a shout-out on the show, and access to any future members-only bonus episodes I do. I do this podcast because I want to make history accessible to everyone and bring you the stories of those that have come before us to life in a way you may not have experienced in history class. A history podcast as intensively researched as this one takes an ungodly amount of time and energy to produce, especially since I'm doing it all on my own, and knowing you're out there listening makes me feel like it's all worth it. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. Now, back to the show. The six men in the Caird were dwarfed by ice floes twice the size of their boat's mast. Ancient, massive, wind-torn bergs deformed by years of violent Antarctic weather jutted from the water in a haunting landscape. The pure white of the newly fallen snow atop the bergs contrasted with the inky blue ice disappearing beneath the waves down to whatever mystery lay below. They couldn't navigate through the ice with the sails, so they took to the oars. After an hour, they broke free of the ice surrounding the outskirts of the island and once again met the open sea. Shackleton watched the shrinking outline of Elephant Island where he had just left 22 members of his crew behind, Bob behind him in the swell. 
They trusted him to make it to South Georgia Island, trusted him to find rescue, trusted him to bring them home. It must have been a heavy feeling. Wanting to utilize the strong winds, he ordered the sails to be raised, and the six of them retreated underneath the decking McNish had fashioned over the bow. It was dark and cramped, too low for anyone to sit fully upright. The days were getting shorter now, and soon the bright blue of the polar sky sank into complete darkness, peppered with the pinpricks of a billion stars. Where they were, absent of any artificial light, the night sky was a primal one, primordial and untouched, as clear for them as it had been for our first ancestors. They could see the Milky Way mingling with the constellations of the Southern Hemisphere, the stars arranged in patterns different from the familiar stars at home. The Big Dipper and the North Star were just memories to them now, not visible from the bottom of the world. But it was beautiful. Even in the context of uncertainty and strife, it was beautiful. And those stars shone over a landscape that almost felt like home now. And even if they did make it out of there alive, a piece of that southern sky would stay with them. Shackleton, who was usually full of confidence, at least that's what he showed to the rest of the world, surprised Worsley by asking his navigator if he really thought they would make it to South Georgia Island. Worsley reassured his leader, but Shackleton was uncharacteristically incredulous. It seemed that for the first time, he believed that the likelihood of them not surviving outweighed any chance they had of ever making it home. Shackleton was an overconfident person. His overconfidence had landed them in trouble repeatedly throughout the journey. It could be argued that this overconfidence in himself was why they were where they were. But insecurity seemed to creep in a bit here. Whether this means Shackleton's optimism had, at least in some part, been an act throughout the journey, something he used to rally the morale of the others, is something we'll never know. He doesn't tell us that in his writings. He was always extremely careful about what he wrote down for posterity. He wanted history to remember him well, but that night in that boat that probably was going to sink on a rescue mission that was probably going to fail, we see a sliver of vulnerability. Although this first night was to prove mercifully uneventful, Right away, Shackleton and his companions began experiencing some of the hardships they had on the first boat journey. Although the planking had been a life-saving addition to the boat, it was not waterproof, and sea spray from the waves crashing alongside a boat that was not equipped to handle them began leaking through in a dozen places, and soon everything was soaked. Their sleeping bags, their clothes, their bodies, Shackleton wrote, this boat journey was one of constant, supreme strife amid heaving waters. And as the night temperatures dropped, the discomfort of extreme cold began to set in. What made things worse was that they had discovered that when the boat was being loaded, the freshwater casks had been cracked and salt water had leaked in, contaminating their supply. Salt water has almost four times the salinity of our bodily fluids, so when we take in high concentrations of sodium and chloride from seawater, things can get hairy pretty fast. Our cells are coated in biological membranes that are semi-permeable, 
While things like sodium and chloride can't easily move in and out of those membranes, water can. When the salt concentrations around our cells become more concentrated than it is inside of our cells, water will move from inside to outside those cells in an attempt to balance everything out. This is called osmosis, and it's an important part of our biological functions. But if we don't start drinking fresh water to balance out that extreme salinity, our cells will actually start to shrink as the water leaves them. If we can't find fresh water, our bodies will then try eliminating the excess sodium through urine. But our kidneys can only produce urine that's slightly less salty than seawater, so we start urinating more water than we're drinking, and that makes us dehydrated. If we continue to drink seawater at this point, we're not able to actually utilize any of the water in it because the high salinity actually turns it into a net loss of fluids, causing us to urinate even more, experience muscle cramps, dry mouth, and an ever-increasing thirst. To compensate for the fluid loss, our bodies will increase our heart rate and constrict our blood vessels in order to maintain blood pressure and flow to our most vital organs, including our brains. This will make us feel nauseous, weak, and this is when we'll start to experience delirium. This is why we have so many stories about people going mad when they drink salt water. After this, if we can't get to fresh water, our brains and organs will continue to receive less blood flow, which will lead to an eventual coma, organ failure, and inevitably death. It's a particularly nasty way to die. Their stores of water were not yet completely contaminated, but the onslaught of ocean spray made protecting them a main priority. Shackleton wrote that they would have the taste of salt water in their mouths for the entire boat journey. They took two-hour shifts at the tiller, and those who were not on watch would find no comfort anywhere in the boat. They would have to crawl on hands and knees in the darkness under the bow, and finding a place to fully rest was impossible. 2,000 pounds, or 907 kilos of rocks and supplies had been placed in the bottom of the boat to give them ballast, and there was no avoiding them. No matter what position they would try to lay in, there was always something digging in somewhere, and they were having to avoid the constant streams of water that were running in small rivers over everything. The next day, they spotted some wreckage, the remains of some unfortunate vessel that had sunk in the violent gales off Cape Horn. An ominous omen for the crew that had once again started allowing superstition to play with their minds. They had brought a double-barreled gun and some cartridges as an emergency precaution against a shortage of food. They were hungry and not eating full rations as they had no idea how long they would be on the sea. They spotted an albatross, a bird that has been the source of superstition for sailors since time immemorial. Some believed they were good luck, some believed they were an ill omen, some believed they were supernatural and contained the souls of lost sailors, and that killing one would bring certain doom. Shackleton wrote of seeing these birds, quote, We might have shot an albatross, but the wandering king of the ocean aroused in us something of the feeling that inspired, too late, the ancient mariner. So the gun remained among the stores and sleeping bags in the narrow quarters beneath our leaking deck, and the birds followed us unmolested." Unquote. He was referencing the poem, The Rime of the Ancient Mariner, by Samuel Taylor Coolridge, in which a sailor dooms his crew by shooting an albatross while they're in the Antarctic. The poem would have been well known by everyone in the Caird, and they weren't taking any chances. 
Their biggest fear was hitting ice at night. A single collision could sink them. But during those first two days, the sea remained clear, the gale force winds remained steady, and by Worsley's calculations, they had made it 128 miles, or 205 kilometers. But their speed did not diminish for them the constant miseries on board, the constant wetness of their clothes which they had not changed in seven months was causing them to chafe and their thighs were rubbed raw, a pain only aggravated when the salt water met their tender skin. Shackleton had also started to become afflicted with his reoccurring case of sciatica, adding additional pain to an already bleak circumstance. Their clothes had been designed for life in the dry, cold air, but not for the wet coldness on the sea. Everything they wore was saturated and heavy, they threw overboard two reindeer skin sleeping bags that had become so sodden they were useless and weighed 40 pounds each, or 18 kilos. The fur in their reindeer skin boots had rubbed away, leaving them bare, limp, and uninsulated. They were bailing out water at frequent intervals. Sometimes the waves would crash against the boat, sending up minimal spray. Other times, the carrot would collide head-on with an oncoming wave as it dipped down into the swell, taking on massive amounts of water. They were moving at a speed of about a mile every half hour. Fixing their position, Worsley related to the others that they had just passed from the so-called Screaming 60s latitudinal line to the Raving 50s. This meant that they were entering the Drake Passage, the gateway to the Antarctic and one of the roughest, most intense areas of ocean in the world. This is for a couple of reasons. The sea here is unencumbered by any sizable piece of land. The water is free to be as wild as it wants, and the wind picks up speed, creating monster waves with nothing to break them or keep them from just getting bigger and bigger. Here, layers of cold seawater from the south collide with warmer water from the north, creating powerful eddies. When these eddies mix with the violent storms that frequent the area and the hurricane velocity winds that can reach up to 200 miles per hour, or 321 kilometers per hour, it can be a devastatingly dangerous place for any ship. The crew of the Caird was in a 22-foot joke of a vessel and everything would have to go right for them to make it through the Drake Passage alive. This was something they were keenly aware of. It is to this day purported to be the roughest sea passage in the world. It's part of the Antarctic Circumpolar Current, which is the strongest ocean current on the planet, five times more powerful than the Gulf Stream. 30-foot or 9-meter waves are common, and in 2017, an 80-foot or 24-meter wave was recorded. That's the largest wave on record in the Southern Hemisphere. I cannot express enough how unlikely it was that these six men were going to make it through this alive. When the Caird hit the monster waves of the Drake Passage, they all thought they were going to die. Lansing wrote about the intensity of this part of the voyage, saying, quote, once every 90 seconds or less, the cared sail would go slack as one of these gigantic waves loomed astern, probably 50 feet, that's 15 meters, above her, and threatening, surely, to bury her under a hundred million tons of water. 
But then by some phenomenon of buoyancy, she was lifted higher and higher up the face of the onrushing swell until she found herself, rather unexpectedly, caught in the turmoil of foam at the summit and hurtling forward, unquote. Every 90 seconds. That means that they thought they were going to die about 960 times a day. They didn't think much about their destination while caught in these winds. They thought only about what they were doing and about what they had to do next. Take a turn on watch, take a turn at the helm, bail out the water, shift the ballast. This they would repeat and repeat and repeat until they were so numb in mind and body, perpetual cold and fear, that the entire horrifying ordeal eventually just seemed normal. For two straight days, it went on like this. Shackleton wrote of the frostbite and blisters on their hands and fingers. He wrote how one on his left hand had burst and the cold bit so deeply into it that he would carry the scar for the rest of his life. The next day, April 28th, the wind stopped screaming, dropped a bit, and the snow began falling less frequently. The sea became more moderate without the winds as its partner, and they finally could sit, eat, and try to get a read on where they were. McNish took his soggy boots off to have a look at his feet. From his toes to his legs, his skin had turned a stark white and become disturbingly puffy from being constantly waterlogged. The rest of the crew examined themselves and found they were the same. Vincent had begun to suffer from rheumatism, which is an outdated term for the severe pain he was experiencing due to the inflammation. His pain was so bad that Shackleton looked through their poultry medicine chest and gave him a small bottle of witch hazel, the only thing they had with them that contained any anti-inflammatory properties. They had been on the water for five grueling days and nights. A sliver of sun peeked through the rift in the gray sky, and Worsley hurriedly took out his sextant, taking advantage of the light to configure a reading. The sun gave him just enough time to configure their position. They had traveled 238 miles, or 383 kilometers, in five days. They were one-third of the way to South Georgia Island. Then came the storm. While the six men on a boat that was too small were fighting to stay alive on a sea that was too rough and too big, there were 22 stranded explorers waiting for them on Elephant Island. Their lot would be one of almost unendurable patience as they could do nothing but just try and survive until help reached them, if it ever would. They were trying to stay optimistic, the most hopeful of them believing they could possibly be rescued in as little as a month this was entirely too optimistic. They would be there on that desolate rock for much, much longer. The weather was gray, full of fog, snow, wind, and general gloom. Their first priority was to construct a better shelter than the overturned lifeboat they were now using. They tried for four days to hack out an ice cave into the side of the glacier that crowned their camp. They eventually carved an enclave large enough to fit several bodies but it became apparent that the heat from those bodies would do nothing but melt the sides of the cave, giving off a constant pouring of water that flowed down the sides and all over the floor. They finally admitted that the ice cave idea had to be abandoned. 
and they turned their attention to the boats. They decided to invert them, using them as roofs, and went to the laborious task of hauling stones, the nearest some 200 meters away, to create a stone foundation four feet high. In their weakened state, this was difficult. Ordelise wrote of this, quote, We are all ridiculously weak. Stones that we could have easily lifted at other times we found quite beyond our capacity, and it needed two or three of us to carry some that would otherwise have been one man's load. Our weakness is best compared with that which one experiences on getting up from a long illness, unquote. They used the canvas from their tents to stretch over the foundation to keep the wind from creeping in through the gaps between the stones. Two overlapping blankets were placed in lieu of a doorway facing the shore. Some planks had been laid over the foundation underneath the inverted roofs of the boats, allowing for a second story of sorts, just large enough for a person to fit in a sleeping bag. It was a very primitive version of bunk beds. When it was completed, the crew one by one entered and claimed a space in their new home, seeking out the driest and smoothest spots. Over the next few days, they did what they could to make their hut a comfortable place on an inhospitable island. They were trying their best to combat the wind and the cold. They moved the blubber stove inside because cooking in the wind and reoccurring blizzards was impossible. After two days, Green the cook suffered from a bout of smoke blindness. To alleviate the smoke problem, the others created a chimney through the roof between the two boats. This helped most of the time, but occasionally a rogue wind would shoot down the chimney and explode a thick eruption of blubber smoke into the tent, causing everyone to rush outside in a choking fit. It was an imperfect solution, but it worked well enough. During the day, the sunlight seeped through the canvas to afford enough light for moving around. But night made things pitch black, and to alleviate the darkness, which was increasing in length with every passing night, they filled a container with blubber oil and, using surgical bandages as wicks, created a makeshift oil lamp. This gave off enough light for them to read or write in their diaries. Bit by bit, solution after solution, they made their hut a more hospitable place to live. But not every day was a good day. One morning, Macklin wrote in his diary, quote, What a miserable getting up. Everything deeply snowed over, footgear frozen so stiff that we could only put it on by degrees, not a dry pair or warm pair of gloves among us. I think I spent this morning the most unhappy hour of my life. All attempts seemed so hopeless, and fate seemed absolutely determined to thwart us. Men sat and cursed, not loudly, but with an intenseness that showed their hatred of this island on which we had sought shelter." Unquote. It seemed the plight of their misery would never end. It was two weeks before the sun came out, but when it did, it allowed them to dry their sleeping bags, and for the first time in a long time, they had a semi-dry place to sleep. Their conversation was usually directed to their thoughts on how Shackleton and the others were faring, where they would be by then, if they had made it to South Georgia. Their apprehension at the idea of winter was growing. They did not want to spend another winter in Antarctica. But if a relief ship didn't get to them soon, the pack ice would surround the island, freeze, and make any attempt at reaching them impossible until spring. 
They stayed as busy as they could, hunting the seals, penguins, and other birds on the island, keeping them supplied with meat and blubber. They took one of the oars that once belonged to their boats and placed it at the highest accessible point. They had a flag from the Royal Yacht Club and tied it to the top of their makeshift flagstaff in case any rescue ship should spot it from the ocean. The two physicians, Macklin and McElroy, were kept busy tending to the many ailments of the crew. Kerr, one of the engineers, had a relentless toothache that he could no longer ignore. Reluctantly, he allowed Macklin to pull it for him. This makes me cringe, as they had no anesthesia. He just had to open his mouth and let the doctor yank the tooth out of its socket. Greenstreet's feet were still damaged from the frostbite he suffered during the open boat journey, and he was confined to his sleeping bag inside the hut all the time. Near him, also bedridden, was Hudson, the navigator. He was suffering from a couple different things. A serious bout of what sounds like depression hit him pretty hard after they reached land. He just laid in his sleeping bag all day, disinterested and detached from anyone around him. The frostbite on his hands seemed to be healing, but the pain he had felt in his buttock after sitting at the tiller for that 72 hours on the boat journey had developed into a painful abscess, which would have to be addressed later. Wordy, the geologist, had a bad hand infection, Holness had a sty, and Rickinson was still recovering from the heart attack he'd had upon landing. The doctors did what they could with what they had, but their supplies were limited, and the island was a difficult place to heal. The worst of them was Blackborough, the forlorn stowaway. His right foot looked promising, but the toes in his left foot were another story. Gangrene had set in. According to an article from Medical News Today, gangrene occurs when a lack of oxygen-rich blood causes tissue to die in some part of the body. In this case, severe frostbite had halted the flow of blood to Blackborough's feet, causing the tissue to begin to die. He could do nothing but watch as part of his own body began to rot. Gangrene needs immediate treatment, or it can spread, causing further infection and eventually death. Blackborough had what they called dry gangrene. This resulted in his toes becoming dry and black. It's sometimes referred to as mummification. If they could keep him dry, it was possible that over time his body would build up a wall, separating the living tissue from the dead tissue and reducing the chance of further infection. If wet gangrene set in, the skin would swell, forming blisters that would rupture, and it would mean the tissue was infected. The infection could spread quickly, causing the stowaway to lose more than just his toes. They were hoping the infection would wait long enough for a rescue ship to take them back to civilization, where Blackborough's foot could be amputated, if need be, in a proper hospital. Only time would tell. While they were busy healing, they came up with routines to give some semblance of normalcy to life on Elephant Island. They would wake, then look for a rescue ship, they would hunt, then look for a rescue ship. They would eat their meals, then look for a rescue ship. But one wasn't coming. A month into their stay, as the sun began to set around 3 p.m., the conversation was still primarily about rescue, but food was a hot topic of discussion, too. 
They had a penny cookbook, and every night they would go through it and discuss recipes and plan out imaginary meals, trying as hard as they could to remember what the food from home tasted like. Most chose to mull over sweets, though there was also talk of scrambled eggs on toast, pork and beans, and all Blackborough wanted more than anything in the world was just some plain bread with butter. As the days carried on, the ice began to encroach upon them, until by the end of May, they found themselves surrounded by pack ice once again. It spread out so far that they couldn't see where it ended. In early June, Macklin wrote of how he would make his way to the top of the hill and search the horizon for a ship that wasn't there. They blamed gales, fog, weather of all sorts, the difficulty of acquiring a rescue ship in South Georgia even. No one would dare voice the most probable reason that no ship was ever on that horizon. The obvious answer was that the cared and the men inside it had been lost. But to voice that concern was to make it real, so they didn't mention it out loud. So they went on and day after day did what they could to alleviate their boredom and dull the hardships they were enduring. One of the most troublesome problems seemed to be the issue of having to urinate at night. If someone needed to relieve themselves, they would have to stumble over the others in the darkness and find the burning blubber lamp they kept burning throughout the night. Once outside, they would often have to face blizzard conditions with small stones and pieces of ice flying through the air. To avoid this, everyone would push the absolute limits of their bladder control only going outside when it became too painful to hold it in anymore. Eventually, Wilde permitted them to convert a two-gallon gasoline can into a portable urinal. The rule was that whoever topped it off to two inches from the top had to be the one to go outside and dump the two gallons of pee onto the frozen ground. No one wanted to do this, and they all became expert at listening for how full the last man had filled the can. Sometimes, someone would discreetly fill the can to the top, only for the next person to find it full, forcing them to curse and dump it out before they could use it. I think this particular story sums up the agony and daily frustrations of the crew better than any other I found. But there were more serious issues than this. The separation between the dead and the living tissue on Blackborough's foot was complete and there was no possibility of postponing surgery. The doctors conferred with one another, and it was declared that they would amputate all of the toes on his left foot on the next warm day. If you're eating right now, pause this and come back later because things are going to get a little gross. It was June 15th and Blackborough had been watching his dead foot rot on his body for a month and a half. He knew amputation was necessary and he steeled himself as best as he could. The island was not a sanitary place, and the surgery would need to be done inside the hut to protect the doctors and the patient from the weather. They prepared as best they could with what little supplies they had. They sterilized the instruments in a boiling tin of melted ice. There was no operating table, so they laid several packing cases in a row next to the stove 
and covered them with blankets. Most of the others were ushered outside. Wild and Howe stayed inside with the doctors to assist where they could, and Hurley stayed too, in charge of stoking the fire and keeping everything as warm and comfortable as possible. They lit every blubber lamp they had for light, and lifted the young stowaway onto the makeshift operating table. McElroy and Macklin stripped down to their undershirts as these were the cleanest clothes they had. The temperature inside the hut rose to 80 degrees, 26 degrees Celsius. They had six ounces of chloroform. That was it. Macklin uncorked the bottle and carefully wetted a piece of surgical gauze, careful not to spill any. He held it to Blackborough's nose and told the young man to breathe in deeply. After about five minutes of this, Blackborough was unconscious, and Macklin nodded to McElroy that they could begin. They unwrapped Blackborough's foot, which had become black and mummified. An empty tin can was placed beneath his foot, which was stretched out off the end of the crates. Wilde took the scalpel, which had been boiling inside the pot of melted ice, and handed it to McElroy. Hudson, who was still confined to his own sleeping bag at the opposite end of the hut, turned his face away, unable to watch. Greenstreet peered down at the scene from his perch on the top bunk. As the light from the blubber lamps flickered throughout the hut, McElroy made an incision and began to cut at the skin around the foot. Wilde watched the whole time unflinchingly. The surgeon asked for his forceps, which Wilde pulled from the boiling tin. As carefully as he could, McElroy reached the forceps underneath the flap of skin he had cut, where the bones met the joint of each toe. One at a time, he snipped off the man's toes and tossed them into the tin below. He scraped at the blackened flesh, carefully removing all the dead tissue, then stitched up the young man's foot. McElroy had to cut the toes all the way to the ball joint. When he finally stirred, Blackborough moaned painfully. It took a while for him to fully regain consciousness, but when he did, he smiled up at the two doctors and politely asked for a cigarette. McElroy tore a page out of their precious Encyclopedia Britannica and rolled a cigarette for Blackborough, which he smoked thoughtfully as he stared down at the spot where his toes had been. That is where we're going to leave our story this week. Next time, you'll hear what became of Shackleton's rescue mission and the fate of the crew stranded back on Elephant Island. I definitely think that the next episode will be the last in this series. If anything, it will be one of the most epic and just as full of heroicism, emotion, survival, adventure, and nerdy science bits as this one was. If you're enjoying the show, please consider following, rating, and reviewing the podcast wherever you listen. And tell your friends about the History Cache. Word of mouth is exceedingly helpful in getting others to learn about the show. If you want to help support the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash historycashpodcast, where you can donate for as little as $1 a month. 
All patrons at every level get a free sticker after signing up. And who doesn't love stickers? Psychopaths, that's who. So sign up and get some swag. If you want to get a hold of me, you can do that at historycashpodcast at gmail.com. I genuinely value the thoughts of my listeners, and I'd love to hear from you. I've been your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and until we meet again, beloved adventuring squires, ancient scribes, bards, and aspiring David Attenboroughs, go make some history.